0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the US Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in this episode, we discuss presidential pardons, the Constitution, and the rule of law. President Trump recently announced that he would pardon Sheriff Joe Arpaio an Arizona sheriff who was found guilty of criminal contempt for his interrogation methods with illegal immigrants. The pardon sparked a wave of debate over the separation of powers and the Constitution. Joining us to discuss the constitutional scope of the pardon power are two of America's leading scholars of the pardon power, Margaret Love is an attorney who specializes in executive clemency, sentencing, and corrections policy. She served as U.S. pardon attorney in the Department of Justice under Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. And Brian Kalt is professor of law and the Harold Norris faculty scholar at Michigan State University College of Law. He's written extensively on presidential pardons and the appointments power. And he is the author of Constitutional Cliffhangers, a legal guide for presidents and their enemies. Margaret, Brian, thank you so much for joining. It's good to be here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Let me begin with the crucial question of what the text of the Constitution says about the pardon power and how the framers of the Constitution originally understood it. Margaret, what can you tell us about those two questions?
2: Well, I would start with Alexander Hamilton who explained the pardon power in Federalist 74 in very operational, um, meat-and-potatoes terms. Um, Hamilton thought that it was very important to include a pardon power in the Constitution because, he said, the criminal justice system partakes of a necessary severity um, that, without exceptions, in favor of what he called, and I'm quoting, unfortunate guilt, the justice system would be too severe. So he saw the pardon power in that respect as a way that the president could step into a severe criminal justice system and cut short the penalty. Um, The other way that Hamilton saw the power functioning was in a much more political sense so that the president could act quickly in times of turmoil, Um, seasons of insurrections is what he called it. In fact, I think it's kind of uh, uh, fitting that one of the first uses of the pardon power, perhaps the first, and Brian can correct me if I'm wrong in that regard, was Washington's pardon of... The farmers in western Pennsylvania who had rebelled against the new government in what is known as the Whiskey Rebellion. Um so he went out, wrote out, and uh, gave an amnesty in effect to the farmers in western Pennsylvania through the pardon power and said that they would not be prosecuted. So that framework of the ordinary operation of the pardon power to m- mitigate the severe justice system and also to step into uh, a political um, uh, hornet's nest, if you will, were the two ways that that Hamilton thought the pardon power ought to be used. And frankly, there is no better explanation and no more detailed explanation from any of the constitutional um, debates, and I have seen that ordinary operation of the pardon power to benefit ordinary people in the justice system as its most important use over the years, even though, of course, there have been extraordinary, high-profile, controversial, irregular, if you will, uses of the power as well.
0: Thanks so much for that. Brian, what can you tell us about how the framers of the Constitution originally understood the pardon power?
1: Well, I think it's also important to look at the roots of the power uh, it it derives fairly uh, directly from the royal power to pardon from uh, from the UK but in between the revolution and the drafting of the constitution various state governments made their constitutions and had to decide what sort of pardon power to give to the governor and they gave much more restrictive uh uh, readings of the power. The governors didn't have as much power if they had it at all. Um, they they didn't want some regal sort of power uh, here. We just fought a revolution about that. But then, when the Constitution was drafted, the, the framers really went back to that. They consciously accepted something that looked more like what the king could do uh, in its broad sweep, the very, very unlimited uh, power, only a couple of limits uh, in the text, maybe a couple of implicit ones, we can talk about those later, but really made the conscious decision to give that broad power. And they worried, as they debated that, they worried about presidents abusing that power, maybe even helping out um, their own associates who had engaged in wrongdoing. And uh, they worried about that. They thought about restricting it. But in the end, they decided not to restrict the pardon power to try and guard against those things. Because unlike a king, the president was subject to an important check. uh, and And that is political. The president operates in a political environment. At the extremes, there's the political remedy of impeachment. And so time and again when, when they thought about the possibility of presidents abusing this power, they said that's, that's uh, essentially a chance we're willing to take, and if it's bad enough, he can be impeached for it. And uh, that's what we've got. It's one, of the, it's one of the, when we think about checks and balances, one of the least checked powers there is, because impeachment is really a rather extreme remedy. And so presidents have had this broad power they've used it uh as margaret says 99% of the time it's ordinary people getting the benefit of the flexibility that hamilton talked about uh tempering the the harshness of the judicial system with a little individualized uh, uh mercy that is warranted and 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 90 so 99% of these pardons are people that no one has has heard of of course 99% of the ones that make headlines are the remaining 1%, uh, where it's people that uh, aren't going through the normal process, and they are people that we've heard of. But um, the, the power encompasses
2: both.
0: May I... Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, that, Brian. And uh, uh, Margaret, uh, please add uh, what you like about the original understanding, and then I want to move to the Supreme Court case law and ask you to describe uh, the ex Parte Garland case of 1866.
2: Let me just add one very short, colorful quote to what um, has been said. Um, James Iredell, who was one of the f- framers of the Constitution from North Carolina, um, spoke in the North Carolina Ratifying uh, Convention, and he talked about the pardon power and the limits on the pardon power, and he said that the only limit on the pardon power for the president would be his fear of, and I'm quoting now, the damnation of his fame to all future ages. So he saw, uh, uh, in a very real sense, um, the limits of the pardon power as uh, a um, uh, the popular uh, disapproval of what the president had done.
0: That leads helpfully to the to the question of Garland and the Supreme Court cases and the, and, the, and the question of what, if any, limits there are on the pardon power. So Garland was the 1866 decision involving a former Confederate senator where the Supreme Court wrote that the power is unlimited. It extends to every offense known to the law. Margaret, can you tell us more about what the court held in Garland?
2: Well, let me say one thing about the Supreme Court's consideration of the pardon power, Um, because there have been a number of not entirely consistent comments from the Supreme Court over the years. There's been a suggestion that a pardon is like a deed. It has to be accepted. Um, There is a suggestion uh, that it uh, is a power of government uh, that can simply be imposed on a person without regard to whether they accept it or not. Um, and those are two Supreme Court decisions that were fairly close to each other. Um, I wouldn't say that the, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court is particularly consistent in all of this, and I'm not sure it's a very good guide um, to what the pardon power actually means. I'm, I'm going to let Brian talk about the Garland decision.
0: S- sounds great. I do, yes. Uh, t- tell us about Garland Brian, and also ex-Party Grossman, which followed uh, Garland and was written by uh, Chief Justice Taft.
1: Well, there is some very broad language in Garland, uh, such as you just quoted. And and um, as sometimes happens with Supreme Court decisions, as Margaret mentions, there are a lot of Supreme Court decisions on the pardon power that uh, might be read as contradicting each other, and so people can find helpful language, um, ignore the unhelpful language. Garland has uh, been quoted for several things, some of which have really been scaled back. So, uh, for instance, in Garland, uh, there was a lengthy passage saying that the pardon blots out the existence of the guilt uh, so that in the eye of the law the offender is as innocent as if he had never committed the offense uh, subsequent cases have stepped back from that and they say well maybe the pardon removes the criminal consequences of the conviction but it doesn't change the facts uh, about what you did it doesn't change the fact that you were indicted if someone asks you if you were indicted if you were convicted you can say yes but i was pardoned but you 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 were the fact of these things still remains In terms of the the breadth of the power, what it reaches, um, the court uh, reflects the broad language in the Constitution. The main limit in the Constitution is that the president can only pardon criminal offenses, and they have to be federal criminal offenses. And uh, to the extent that we're talking not about the criminal justice system, but about Congress impeaching people, the pardon power cannot reach impeachment congress can impeach whomever it wants without the president interceding or undoing what they've done so the president has this broad power as they uh... as as they laid it out in these cases where the president can pardon people before they've been charged with anything uh... let alone convicted of anything uh, the president can uh... remit criminal fines can commute sentences let people out Early, if that's what's appropriate, um, the president can attach conditions to these things. Um, the, so, so there are uh, a, a lot of ways that the president can use this power. The main limitation, other than the ones in the text, is that the pardon can only extend to things that the the recipient of the pardon has already done. So you can't be pardoned in advance for things you haven't done yet. Even if you haven't been charged or convicted, uh, as long as you've done it, it's subject to the pardon power. Again, the president can remove any or some subset, if he wants to not give a full pardon, remove any of the criminal consequences of your action.
0: It's that question, Margaret, that I want to take up about the the limits of the pardon power. I know that none of us has studied in detail the dissent in Garland, uh, uh, but I'm just reading from Justice Miller's dissent. And the question is whether this congressional law, which requires people to take an oath of loyalty after they've been rebels against the union in order to practice law is valid. And the dissenters say it is valid, uh, but they say, I'm willing to concede the presidential pardon relieves the party from all penalties or in other words, from all the punishment which the law inflicted for his offense, but it relieves him of nothing more, if the oath required as a condition to practicing law is not a punishment, as I think I've shown it's not, then the pardon of the president has no effect in releasing him from the requirement to take it. If it is a qualification which Congress had a right to prescribe as necessary to an attorney, then the president cannot by pardon or otherwise dispense with the law requiring such qualification. Can you Parse that and, and what sure. limitations um, are yeah. there?
2: Yeah, and I'm happy to parse it. Uh, just to follow up on what Brian said, uh, a pardon does not blot out guilt. It does not mean that the conduct underlying the crime uh, goes away. It does not mean that it may not be taken into account by a decision maker. For example, a licensing board, uh, whether it's a bar license or whether it's uh, a plumber's license uh... the character of the individual who committed the crime remains uh... relevant now that's not the, the case in all states and again as brian mentioned each state has um, uh... its own particular version of a pardon power and in some states expungement follows a pardon and in that event um in some states it is indeed as if the crime never occurred um, but that's not the case in the federal system, uh, and never has been. There's an interesting case from the D.C. Court of Appeals that followed the, um, uh, Iran involving Elliot Abrams, who was, uh, subject to discipline by the D.C. bar for, uh, lying to Congress, not for having been convicted of lying to congress but of having lied to congress and the d.c. court of appeals in a very interesting decision on bank uh, reversing the panel who cited the blot out guilt language um... said no no it doesn't blot out guilt it does not blot out the fact that you committed the offense So i think there's a distinction between um, uh, relieving the specific legal uh, restrictions imposed by a conviction. And I wouldn't necessarily call them punishment. And, in fact, the Supreme Court has um, been pains to say that these, quote, civil, unquote, penalties, civil penalties, civil disabilities, if you will, things like sex offender registration um, are not constitutional punishment in the sense that they are subject to... Um, regulation under the ex post facto or due process clauses. Now, some state courts have come to a different conclusion, and hope springs eternal in my uh, life opinion, that the Supreme Court will change its mind on that question as well. But the fact is that um, a presidential pardon does remove the absolute mandatory restrictions. It does not remove the ability to take the conduct into account.
0: Um, That's very helpful. So Brian, as I understand Margaret, uh, the pardon wipes out uh, criminal punishment, but it's still possible to impose civil disabilities. And in Garland, the dissenters seem to feel that the uh, disability from practicing law uh, was not a punishment, but was a disability that Congress had the right to impose. Tell us now about the Grossman case decided in 1925. Uh, Grossman was convicted of violating the Volstead Act. And uh, two federal judges found that President Coolidge's pardon was a slur on the judiciary and ruled that the power of the court to punish someone for contempt was inherent and essential to the very existence of the judiciary. But it went up to the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Taft, our most judicial president and and presidential chief justice found in favor of the executive and presidential power. Tell us what Taft held in Grossman.
2: Well,
1: Taft, uh, very squarely addressed the two main arguments against allowing for pardons of criminal contempt. The first was that the pardon power only extends to, quote, offenses against the United States. Uh, and so the argument was that a criminal contempt, that's that's not a, uh, an offense against the United States in the sense of being a violation of federal criminal law. That is something rather different. It's the court, sort of enforcing its own um, its own prerogatives to have people come in and testify and force them to testify, and uh, the court, uh, Chief Justice Heft rejected that and said, "Well, no. If you're if you're calling this a crime and you're putting someone in prison for doing this, it's an offense against the United States, and the president has the power to pardon that and to release people from." those consequences importantly civil contempt um, they said was not pardonable so it's only it's only criminal contempt but the second part of the argument was the uh, and this is uh, i think what's talked about more these days is the separation of powers uh part of it that the the president uh in stopping the court from protecting itself in this way was interfering with the court's prerogative uh, and was violating the separation of powers and that this shouldn't be allowed, and Taft rejected that. And uh, he, he said the pardon power is a check against uh, undue prejudice or needless severity. Uh, if, if, uh, if we said that the pardon power couldn't uh... hack away at anything that any other branch had attempted to do that there wouldn't be anything left because any anytime the president pardons someone he's taking something that congress has said should be illegal and should be punished in a certain way and or that a court has decided broke the law and should be punished in a certain way and reducing or undoing that conclusion so pardons inherently have that effect every pardon Um, is uh, an encroachment on the other branches. And that's that's what it is. So Taft accepted that, and the law ever since then has been clear that presidents can pardon criminal contempt of court.
0: Many thanks for that. So, Margaret, uh, commentators have differed about whether the Taft opinion in Grossman justifies or not President Trump's power to pardon Sheriff Arpaio. Judge Nancy Gertner in the Boston Globe said as a result of Taft's opinion in Grossman, the president does have the power to pardon the sheriff. Uh, However distasteful, the fact is that President Trump has the legal authority to pardon the sheriff for his criminal contempt conviction in accordance with Grossman, she says. But Meryl Chertoff says that uh, President Trump pardoning Joe Arpaio would abuse federal clemency power. And she says that the Grossman opinion is different from that in the Arpaio case. What is your view, and do you believe that the Arpaio pardon is justified under Grossman or not?
2: Well, I think there's a big difference uh, between power and um, and politics in this case. Um, the, the question whether it was, quote, justified, unquote, or appropriate or acceptable um, is a totally different question than whether the... President has the power to do it, and I think that there's been a bit of confusion in that regard. I would come down. Uh, I have not read the the other uh, piece that your uh, that you mentioned, but it seems to me that Judge Gartner has uh, is 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 absolutely correct that that the president has the power to do it, and there have been very distasteful pardons in the past, and ones that caused a you know tremendous amount of heartburn. Um, The Mark Rich pardon at the end of the Clinton administration is always cited, but there were, uh, you know, at least a dozen other grants at the end of the Clinton administration that were equally um, objectionable and, in fact, even, um, um, well, I don't know (laughs) what the right word is. But there is a lot of disagreement, and the fact that you are are offended deeply at what uh, someone may have done The fact that the president has used his power to uh, excuse it, to dispense mercy, to cut short punishment, um, and even, depending upon the terms of the grant, uh, to declare that in his opinion the person is innocent of wrongdoing um, does not... Um, uh, reflect upon the power of the president to do it. And, again, I would uh, remind you of of Iredell's wonderful statement about the damnation of the president's fame to all future ages. That's the control. If people think that he did a profoundly wrong thing in appearing to justify, in fact justifying, what Sheriff Arpaio has done over the years, and, in fact, to associate himself, perhaps, with it, Um, then let them uh, comment on the president's reputation going forward, but not on the power.
0: Thanks for that. So, Brian, do you agree with Margaret or not that uh, the president had the constitutional power to pardon Arpaio and then put the Arpaio pardon in historical context, if you will, the 538 blog, gave a series of examples over history of pardons analogous to this, including pardons of someone who's violated civil rights, pardoning a political crony, granting clemency to someone whose duty is to protect the public. Clemency is a policy tool. I won't read the whole list, but but they're, uh, they give lots of historical examples. Can you please put the Arpaio pardon in historical context?
1: Well, first, I do agree that we need to draw a very clear distinction between what the president has the power to do and how he should use that power. And I'm troubled on the just on the facts of the case on uh, whether the pardon should have been granted or not. I think there are a lot of valid questions to ask about that. But I entertain uh, virtually no doubt that president had the power to do it. I've seen some creative legal theories, and uh, I, I doubt any of them will get into court for uh, reasons of standing, but uh, I haven't seen anything that convinces me that there's anything wrong with this pardon other than uh, the, the merits. If one imagines uh, a situation in which you imagine yourself as president and a court does something that you think is wrong. Uh, Someone stands up to that court and refuses to obey what that court is ordering them to do. And you, the president, think that that person is right, that that person's civil disobedience is justified. Um, the, The pardon power is available for that sort of situation. The fact that we disagree In this instance that the president is correct about that we think the president should be back in the court and not the disobedient person that's a question of fact not a question of the president's power in terms of the historical context um, I I think this is uh, unusual in recent memory at least unusual to me uh, as one of the things that you mentioned, uh, the use of the the, the power uh, politically. Uh, that is, I think that President Trump issued this pardon not just because he wanted to help out uh, Joe Arpaio. I th- think he also did it because he wanted to do something that he thought would appeal to a certain group of voters, and that. I think is unusual in recent memory. I think that things changed quite a bit with President Ford's pardon of President Nixon, which not everyone agrees, but I think there's a consensus that uh, that probably cost Ford the election. Ford pardoned Nixon, his approval ratings immediately uh, went down and never fully recovered. And At the same time, that was the pardon power the way it's supposed to work, the president making a policy decision at a point where he's politically accountable for it, and then being held accountable for it. Since then, most of the more controversial pardons have been at a point when the president is not politically accountable, at a point when his party is not. So we saw President Clinton waiting until after the election to issue those controversial pardons. We saw President uh, George H.W. Bush wait until he had lost the election in 1992 before pardoning the Iran-Contra defendants. So President Trump's pardon here might be uh, objectionable in any one of a number of ways as a, a matter of policy, but the one thing he did that's I think more consistent with the constitutional design than some of those other constitutional pardons was he did it at a time when the voters are going to have an opportunity to weigh in on it. Uh, if he keeps doing things like this, it might make his political position in Congress more difficult. It might make the Republicans' electoral prospects next year more difficult. It might make the president's own electoral prospects more difficult in 2020 if he's running again. And that's the way the system is supposed to work. So um in in that context i think um, it's it's actually a good reminder of how this is all supposed to go
0: may margaret, i yeah, margaret you've seen of course uh, the full range of pardons uh, can you tell us uh, historically how is the pardon power ordinarily operated and then what category of cases would you describe as extraordinary and is the arpeo pardon in the
2: extraordinary category or not sure um Well, historically, beginning from the very early years of the Republic, the pardon power has been used in in a very operational way, uh, in exactly the way that Hamilton um, conceived of it to uh, lessen the severity of the law. And there were hundreds of pardons every year by the president uh, through, really, uh, about 1980. And whether it was commuting long prison sentences or restoring civil rights, the, the average person who was pardoned was somebody that nobody knew of. And it was, and it operated, uh, to Brian's point, uh, in a very regular basis throughout a president's term. Many presidents would, uh, pardon regularly once a month. There would be a warrant of pardon. And it started pretty soon in their term. So, that's an, an operation of the pardon power that most people are not aware of because the people who were pardoned were not particularly um, high profile. Um, so um, the more controversial grants where the pardons are memorable are ones that do have more of a political tinge, whether it's the Vietnam amnesties or uh, whether it's the uh, FALN um, grants, the Puerto Rican terrorists that President Clinton pardoned. And again, that was during his term, so he could be held accountable for that. Um, so my uh, particular interest in the pardon power is how, until quite recently, it has operated as a, as a very important key aspect of the justice system, and that it has been um, pretty much managed by the Department of Justice since the Civil War. Um, Lincoln's attorney general famously said that the president could not be trusted with the pardon power, which I think is a pretty funny um, characterization of our most famous or next to most famous president, Lincoln. But uh, he said, everyone must come through me, the attorney general, if they want the president's mercy. Uh, I think he was particularly, con- the generals were concerned about Lincoln's use of the pardon power. Um, in any event, um, ever since the Civil War, the Justice Department has managed uh, the pardon power and managed it very well. In fact, there have been controversial grants, but until Clinton's term, really no scandalous ones. Um, so I think the, the change in the past 30 or 40 years Um, has been really in the Justice Department's uh, increasingly uh, parsimonious um, management of the pardon power, uh, not so much in the attitude of the president. And in several cases, I'm thinking of George W. Bush particularly, um, the president wanted to use the power and was, in a sense, frustrated uh, by the Justice Department. So let me, could I mention just one constitutional issue that that I think is an an important thing? It's a bit of a digression here, perhaps I should have said it earlier. There are limits on the president's constitutional power in other provisions of the Constitution. One that I'm thinking of uh, was present in the Burdick case. Burdick was an editor of the New York Times. Uh, who uh, had declined uh, to testify about his sources, and he had claimed the Fifth Amendment. And uh, even though the court's opinion and verdict did not specifically go to this issue, I have always read that case to uh, mean that the president cannot force someone to waive their Fifth Amendment rights by pardoning them. Um, so, so I can imagine a scenario where there would be a First Amendment issue that, that would run up against the pardon power. So so there is that limit. It doesn't happen very often. But if there's a limit internal to the document, then, then I think that you could say that there are some constitutional limits on the pardon power.
0: Fascinating. Uh, Brian, tell us more about the Burdick case. The Constitution Center held a symposium at the Ford Library recently on Ford's constitutional legacy, and Benton Becker, Ford's counsel, said that Ford would carry in his wallet a citation to the Burdick case, which said that acceptance of a pardon is an admission of guilt. And that was hugely important for him in granting the Nixon power. Was that a fair reading of Burdick? And what other limits do you find in Burdick on the pardon power?
1: As as big an admirer of President Ford as I am, as our, our only Michigander... Uh, president. Uh, I I think he got that wrong. He was being defensive, and I think needlessly so, because his point in pulling that scrap out of his wallet and showing it to people was to say, I pardoned Nixon, and in doing so was saying that he had done something wrong and that there was something to pardon him for. And Nixon, in accepting that pardon, admitted that too. But that's not because pardons automatically and always have that effect, because they don't. President Ford also pardoned Iva Tuguri, uh so-called Tokyo Rose, on the basis that she had actually been innocent. There's a 60-minute special about it, and there was this grave miscarriage of justice. And he, he wasn't pardoning her to declare her guilt, uh, and she didn't accept it to admit it. It was quite the opposite. So I think he was being defensive, and he had the power to state what he was doing in pardoning Nixon and what he intended to impute in terms of Nixon's guilt uh, when he did it. Burdick uh, is an example. Um, Margaret's uh, reading of it, I think, is is absolutely right about the the First Amendment limitations on it. Um, a case called Chick versus Reed in talking about how broad the pardon power was, uh, said any limits on the pardon power that aren't in the pardon clause itself would have to be from somewhere else in the Constitution. Well, there are a lot of other clauses in the Constitution, and there are a lot of other, as a result, a lot of other possibilities to hem it in. In Burdick, um, they use this language in, in dicta as an aside, not part of the holding, that a pardon is a declaration of guilt, acceptance of it is an admission of guilt, making sort of a a descriptive uh, point that someone might not want to accept a pardon, and that's the issue in the case, Uh, can people refuse to accept a pardon? Someone might not want to accept a pardon because it would make them look like they had something to be pardoned for. It would make them look guilty. Not that it would have the legal effect of declaring them guilty, but that it would be undesirable to them uh, contextually. That's not what stopped Burdick from accepting it. He wasn't concerned about appearing to be guilty of something. He just wanted to avoid testifying. So, So that line, I think, has been taken out of context and then overused in a way that I think um, is is not helpful the the key holding in burdick and the only thing that i think it's uh, rightly considered for is this notion that someone can refuse to accept a pardon in a context like that there are other contexts in which someone cannot refuse to accept a pardon if the president wants to commute someone's sentence the person and doesn't attach any conditions to it the, the person can't say no i'd rather stay in prison If the president of the United States says that you're not supposed to be in prison anymore, uh, then you don't get to overrule that and require the prisons to keep you. So,
2: and interestingly enough, there was a Supreme Court case just 12 years after Burdick that said exactly what you're saying now, and that's Biddle against Perovich. Um, And in that case... Um, Mr. Perovic uh, did not want to accept the pardon. It's rather a complicated reason why he didn't. But he was under uh, a death sentence, and again, a bit complicated. He said no, he did not want the pardon, and the president said, "Well, I'm sorry, you're getting it anyway." And the court said. Um, that that a pardon is an official act. It is not this sort of act of, of of grace that one can accept or not. It is an official act of the government, and you know, the person who gets it uh, will have to take it willy nilly
0: Thanks for that. so Brian, as as you as you continue on on Burdick, Brian, can you uh, tell us whether, given the fact that the pardon can be used to exonerate as well as to accept guilt, Uh, what are the implications for that on presidential self-pardons?
1: Well, this is something I've thought a lot about. Actually, my very first foray into legal research and writing was as a second-year law student asking in my criminal procedure class when we were talking about presidential pardons uh, whether the president could pardon himself. And my professor, Akhil Rita Hmm. said, I don't know, you should look into that. So I did, (laughs) and I... I I concluded that the, the best argument is that the president cannot. That's to say, if I were a judge and the case came to me, I would rule against it. But there are arguments on both sides. I have a, a chapter in my book where I look at both sides uh, in a way I didn't in my student article. Um, one point that I hear made when people discuss this is, the president would never pardon himself because he'd have to admit that he's guilty in order to do that and i just flat-out reject that and i and i i i worry when people say that because that leaves them unprepared for what it would sound like if a president ever pardoned himself and the chapter in my book i wrote in two thousand twelve purely hypothetical it's a it's a fictional president saying i'm being investigated uh, i didn't do anything wrong uh, he, politically he doesn't want to fire the independent counsel, that would look bad, but he says, this is, this is a witch hunt, uh, these charges are bogus, um, and we need to stop this investigation, and I have the power to do that, and I'm going to use that power. And, in, and so pardoning himself, declare that he's innocent, not that he's guilty and that he's forgiving himself. Um, the argument that he can do it is that there's nothing explicit in the Constitution that says that he can't. But I think there are good reasons to think uh, that he can't. There are other limits on the pardon power that are not written explicitly into the the text. Like we said, you can't pardon future acts. That's not explicitly set out in the Constitution. It's just something inherent in the notion of what a pardon is. And so my first uh, argument is that it's inherent in the notion of a pardon that it's bilateral, that it's something you give to someone else. Uh, the silly example is if you're alone in your home and you burp, you, you don't pardon yourself. You ask someone else to pardon you, right, even though there's no one there. But more directly, looking at the language, the Latin roots of the word, uh, similar roots for the, the verb condone or donate, right? You don't condone your own actions. It doesn't make sense to say that. You You can't donate something to yourself. You'd have to create some other financial entity that you control and donate to that, but it would have to be separate. It's inherently bilateral. It's like saying you're going to give someone a lift to the store. You can't say that you would give yourself a lift to the store. It just doesn't make sense. And I think that a court should look at it that way. The the second idea is that there's this old principle in the law that no one should be the judge in his own case. And courts apply that, uh, except when they don't. Um, it's not, uh, it's not inherently, uh, it's not a constitutional requirement as such, but it's a venerable principle that courts can and have latched onto and if they wanted to rule against a self-pardon could put a lot of weight on that. Uh, finally, there is, there is one bit of historical evidence from the convention debates when they were talking about limiting the pardon power. Someone suggested limiting it, uh, so that the president couldn't pardon traitors and the reason was that Uh, He said the traitors might be working for him. They might be his own instrument, was how they put it. And they didn't want uh, to put that sort of trust in a a president. But that argument failed. Uh, The argument in favor of keeping the pardon power unlimited remained. And uh, James Wilson said, in in making the, the winning case for this, he said, if the president is himself a traitor, then he can be impeached and he can be prosecuted. And so, to me, that suggests that nobody present thought that a president could pardon himself because if he could pardon himself, he couldn't be prosecuted. Uh, he would just have to pardon himself before they were done impeaching him, and then he wouldn't be able to be prosecuted, and that argument wouldn't have carried the day. So I think the, the best argument is that the president cannot pardon himself. But there's no case law. Um, Nixon didn't do it. Uh, Clinton didn't do it, so we don't know. And so the answer, can he pardon himself, is, well, he can try. I don't think it would work, but he can try. There's nothing ruling that out just yet.
0: Many thanks Um, for that. Uh, Margaret, uh, your thoughts, please, your thoughts, please, on whether or not the president can pardon himself, arguments on both sides, and how you come down.
2: Yeah, I'm afraid that um, I don't have an opposing view (laughs) to Brian's, but I do have just two things to add. First of all, there are other ways for the president to end a criminal investigation, uh, even one uh, involving himself. Um, and we've heard a lot of discussion about um, how the president might end the investigation of an independent counsel. Um, the other thing that I would simply say is that, uh, and this is brought to mind a piece yesterday in the Post by, by Phil Bacavara, uh, which is that if a pardon is granted corruptly, I mean, in the, in the worst sense, if the president accepts money um, for giving someone a pardon, that that is an ex- exaggerated example, um, the president can be prosecuted for that. Now, perhaps not during his term in office, but certainly subsequent to um, or after leaving office, so, so uh, the fact that, um, or to obstruct justice, if, if a pardon is granted with, with criminal intent and with, uh, you know, there is a crime, um, and I don't know that there's ever been an example in our history uh, where that uh, evidence was present, uh, it seems to me that, that he could certainly be prosecuted, even if not in office.
0: Brian, do you agree with uh, Phil Lockaver and, and, and Margaret's suggestion that if the president grants a pardon in exchange for money, that he could, after leaving office, be prosecuted under statutes prohibiting obstruction of justice?
1: I think uh, I well, I agree hundred um, percent. I think that it can be more difficult to prove a case of obstruction of justice against a president, but the bribery example makes it very. Uh, very clean. Um, to, to argue that the pardon is not valid I think is a stretch. I think the pardon would have to be honored, but I think that the corruption underlying it could be prosecuted just like it could for taking a bribe for doing any other official act, for signing or vetoing a piece of legislation in exchange for a big bag of money. That. Uh, isn't to say that the veto wouldn't still be effective, but the corruption could be prosecuted. Whether uh, he he could be prosecuted while in office is an open question, but I think certainly afterwards there's no question uh, that that would be uh, fair game. And I think that that's an important check on the president's power. I think the possibility of state prosecutions uh, are an important check on his power, too, because he can't reach those, and by pardoning people that might perk up the ears of the state uh, prosecutors in a in a way that might be counterproductive to his interests
0: so one more beat on this, and then we'll and so so Margaret, what are other uh, limits on the pardon power in this context? Imagine that the president were to pardon his son or his Son in law, uh, because of the corrupt motive of uh, avoiding their testimony that might implicate him, could that be prosecuted subsequently under federal or state obstruction laws? And, and what are the limits on the power to prosecute the president for obstruction in the context of pardons?
2: Well, I think Brian has mentioned a limit, and that is the problem of proof. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty high bar to prosecute someone for obstruction in any event. Um, so that the evidentiary bar would would be uh, an an important obstacle. Uh, you mentioned state uh, now i mean I think that is important to to emphasize i 'm glad you brought it up brian that, that the whole issue of the limits of the constitutional power. Uh, It does only go to offenses against the United States, in other words, federal crimes, and it does not go at all to state crimes. And so uh, I I have heard, actually, that there's been uh, some movement in that direction of consultation um, by the independent counsel, the special counsel, with um, state officials. Now I have no idea whether that's true or not, but I have heard it said. and so that would certainly be something that the president could not um, escape if if there was... Now, whether he could be prosecuted while in office is an entirely different thing. Uh, and I think probably the same arguments that would um, preclude his being prosecuted while in office would apply to state prosecutors as well as federal. But I haven't really thought that through, so it's a bit of a half-baked opinion there.
0: Uh, half-baked but extremely provocative, as has this whole conversation been about the limits of the pardon power, and it is time for closing arguments. Uh, Brian, uh, the first one to you, Uh, what, if any, are the constitutional limits on the pardon power, and why should our listeners care about this fascinating question?
1: I think the most important limit on the pardon power is the under-recognized political check. Uh, For so many years, the pardon power has not been used in a way that has uh, garnered much attention from the public. And when it has, it's been at a time when the president is not accountable. Uh, This obscures the fact that the main limit, the only limit in, in many cases, on the pardon power was supposed to be public opinion and the political ramifications of the movements in public opinion. So if people feel strongly, one way or another, about uh, President Trump's pardons or anyone else's pardons, and they uh, make their voices heard about that one way or another, that's the system working the way it's supposed to. Um, That's, to me, in, in a way, it's very encouraging to hear all of this interest in the pardon power because it's a restoration of that original design of the president using the pardon power and the people caring enough to respond and make uh, political ramifications um, uh, part of this equation.
0: Thanks so much for that. Margaret, last word to you. What are the limitations on the pardon power, constitutional, legal, or political, and why should our listeners care about it?
2: Well, I don't know that I can really add much to what Brian has said about the limits on the power except to this extent, that if the president uses the power in a way that is seen by the public as responsible and constructive and fair to advance uh, the positive uh, goals of the criminal justice system, it seems to me that that would go a long way to ameliorating any uh, bad feeling that the public might have. Um, over sort of special deals, what we used to call special deals in the pardon attorney's office, um, I feel very strongly that uh, if, if we can uh, if come out of this episode with a new appreciation of the basic goals of the pardon power and the way it's been used over our history, and if we can restore some of that functionality, uh, it would be uh, very much. Um, we would come out ahead as a nation. And so that is my hope for this whole episode, is that we can regain some of the uh, feeling about the ordinary operation of the pardon power that has been so constructive over so many years of our history.
0: Thank you so much, Brian Colt and Margaret Love, for an illuminating, thoughtful, and provocative discussion of this incredibly important constitutional power uh, we the People listeners, follow-up reading. Uh, Brian Cult has uh, an article online. Pardon me, the constitutional case against presidential self-pardons. And at Margaret's website, pardonlaw.com, you will find her book, including collateral consequences of criminal convictions and her articles. Margaret, Brian, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you, Jeffrey, for having us.
0: Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. All of our ability to engage in this inspiring outreach of education and debate depends on the support and engagement of people like you around the country who are passionate, lifelong learners. I want you to go to the website, sign up to become a member of the National Constitution Center, get our content, be a member of our community of lifelong learners, and educate and elevate yourself by learning more about the Constitution of the United States. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of
2: the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.